Welcome to Virtual Economy, a podcast about the business of games for the rest of us. We're your hosts. I'm Amanda Farrow. And I'm Michael Footer. On each episode, we'll bring you analysis of the biggest business beats in video game news. This is episode 144, Weird Corporate Shenanigans. So it's just like every other every other episode. I just finished playing a Marvel Snap game with two of those locations, eventually the ones where apply your power here to every other location. Apply weird corporate shenanigans to literally <laughs> every episode we've ever recorded. It's so true though. It feels like every single episode we record, it's like, what else is what else are corporations doing? Shenanigans. Alright. Yeah, pieces of flair, baby. Oh boy. Oh, I didn't like that one. That's not quite psychic damage, but that's that's getting pre- that's that's a No, no, no. Here's close. the psychic damage. Don't do Pieces it. Pieces of flare are NFTs now. Oh, I hate it. You're right. That is psychic damage. Oh, I hurt everybody. You hurt everybody's brain. Yep. Why in fact are you like this? I don't know. Uh but we're going to find out. So, we have four earnings. This is not the end of earnings. I it's never the end of earnings season, so, just to tell everyone. Well, we have left, Embracers left, and mm-hmm. they are next week. Yes. And we have GameStop, which is likely to be December. <laughs> we're gonna have to but we're gonna have to bust out of beer to deal with GameStop because the shenanigans there are just unyielding. It's it's gonna be interesting because they in September announced a deal with FTX. Now you may recall that from the news this week, FTX is going bankrupt. And their CEO resigned like because they made a couple of little errors. Billions and billions of dollars. Just, just $8 billion, I think. Just evaporated. Out. Just wiped out. Unlike matter, money can be destroyed. Oops. Whoa. Yeah. So Oopsie doopsie. So we're kicking off with Square Enix's <laughs> earnings for the first half of fiscal year 2023. We're going to run through these pretty quickly. Net sales down 3.3% to 163.4 billion yen or $1.1 billion dollars. Operating income down a whopping 10.6% to 26 billion yen. That's $177.7 million. Net income was up 71.7% to 39.5 billion yen, which is Uh $269.3 million. Now, why the big net income jump? The $300 million sale at Crystal Dynamics. I'm sorry, the fire sale? The fire sale. We did a literal whole emergency episode about it earlier this year because we were both... So astounded. Yeah. So that's the sale of Crystal, Eidos, Montreal, and the now shuttered Square Enix, Montreal. Um, I'm going to see if I actually put this anywhere else. Uh, yeah. So what I'm interpreting from the uh, documents is that without the crystal, without the sale, now it's 300, it was 300 gross. Now there's a lot of fees to be paid, lawyers and all that stuff on top of it. You always got to have your lawyers. You but without that, they would have actually shown a, a net loss. For the first half of the yeah, year. Yeah, it's not surprising. All right, so let's talk about the different pillars of the Square Enix business. Walk digital, us through. Digital entertainment, which is where video games and uh, where, where video games live. Net sales are down 9.5% to 117.2 billion yen or $799.4 million. Uh, operating income was down 16.6% to 24.6 billion yen. Apparently, I just <laughs> forgot to do the conversion. <laughs> There. I just noticed that. So you know what? It's an pick ethere- a number. It's folks. an ethereal amount of money. Pick, Don't pick worry a number about because it. I'm not sitting in front of my computer with my with my converter. Right no, there. we're we're sitting in front of my laptop right now, which is current. Remember, we don't have a studio. <laughs> yeah, eventually we will. 
Eventually we will. So I mean, what we can call that? Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 under two hundred million dollars. <laughs> but operating income was down sixteen point six percent. That's the important part. Uh, Square Enix cites a strong comp last year that included Outriders and Near Replicant. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, wait, this wait. is. Yeah, I know where your head's going. Well. But if Outriders was doing so well, what's going on with the whole royalties with People Can Fly? I have, that's a big question. And I really, really wonder if that royalty agreement was written in such a way where there was some loophole stuff going on with Game Pass. Oh, that would suck so much. And we've talked about it, but yeah, that would suck I, so much. I, I think if that is the case, if there were some weird corporate shenanigans there. <gasps> I see what you did there. Yeah. I see what you did there. We'll hear about it. It'll come out. Yeah, uh, Net will. sales are up for Final Fantasy fourteen. Good for them. Not Final Fantasy fourteen is great. Mobile titles are still underperforming, though. And we know that the Final Fantasy VII mobile battle royale game for Soldier is done. Done come January. Mm-hmm. Its closure was announced less than a year after launch. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. So, again, they're calling it a strong comp. So we'll see what happens through the rest okay. of the year. They have a lot of titles coming. They do. Uh, yeah. Tactics Ogre just landed in our hands today. Uh, I'm actually Harvestella very excited about that. Came out. I, we have not had a chance to play Harvestella yet, but I'm very excited about that. Obviously, Crisis Core comes out in December. So Square Enix has a lot of titles. Front Mission is coming out at the end of the... Front Mission 1 remake is coming out at the end of this month. I'm a huge Front Mission fan. It's tactical strategy plus mechs. It's like, basically... Yeah, it's basically hook Mike up into the machine itself. It's true. Uh, on the amusement front, uh, net sales are up 22.7% to 25.9 billion yen or $167.8 million. Operating income was up 289.9% to 2.5 billion yen. Again, relatively small amounts compared to digital entertainment. That's $17.4 million. No explanation here. There was like no color at all in the documents. What is Square Enix doing with, I don't its, know. with, with its quarterlies? They've but, been kind of weird for the last couple of quarters. I know, but we're going to do a tip. Oh, wait, we haven't gotten there yet. Oh, no. There's more some, weird there are some cor- weird corporate shenanigans. <laughs> uh, tip of the hat to Capcom, though, uh, because they explained it. Uh, and it was a result that when they saw their amusement division mm-hmm. uh, and it saw an increase this quarter. Uh, a result of the Japanese economy opening back up. Yeah, I mean, not sense. hard to interpret what's going on there, but it's weird that they didn't just say it. They don't want you to know. Don't perceive. Hold on. We'll get there. Okay. Publications. Net sales up 3.8% to 14.7 billion yen or $100.2 million. Operating income up 1.3% to $6.1 billion or $41.3 million. So publications doing well. Mm -hmm. Merchandising. Again, net sales up 28% to 7.4 billion yen or $50.7 million. But operating income was down 1.2% to 1.8 billion yen or $12.1 million. So this is something we saw last quarter mm-hmm. where their new character merchandise drove sales, but they've had significant changes in the sales mix. So that's depressed the operating income. So what it, me- right. what it means is they're carrying a lot of inventory costs because they sold some stuff. It did well, but they overordered. So they're sitting on stock that they can't move. So there are probably going to be some sales around the holidays on some of the character merchandise that is no longer moving. Mm-hmm. So, in its presentation to investors, Square Enix detailed a number of new investments in blockchain and NFT projects in the USA, Estonia, and France. Additionally, Square Enix is investing with Animoca Brands. We don't talk about them a lot because they are Web3. They are heavily Web3, uh, but they're big, and they are, uh, they're, they're enormous, and they're in all different kinds of Web3. They're doing NFTs, they're doing blockchain stuff, uh, and also the Sandbox. So, good luck, I guess, with that. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't have any deals in the works with FTX, I guess. 
Uh, Sony has announced that Final Fantasy 16 will be exclusive to PlayStation 5 for at least six months. Given that Final Fantasy 7 Remake still isn't on Xbox, well, it could be longer. Uh, and while this is a Sony side note, this form of paying for exclusive content is fine, but Microsoft acquiring Activision and making commitments to not make content exclusive is apparently offensive. It's very offensive. Um, and again, I think there was a great piece that uh, uh, Jez Corden wrote on Windows Central about how this could actually backfire for Sony because if if Microsoft isn't able to acquire Activision because of regulatory issues, they're going to take all of that money that they were going to spend on acquiring Activision, they're going to start throwing it at third-party publishers for exclusives. Because yeah. if that's okay, yeah. if that is the thing that's okay, then that's well, the game I they're going to play. I mean, okay, there, there's a lot to say about that in particular, but I think that actually goes against their their philosophy at Xbox I Game think Studios. it does too, but but here's the thing. Failing in this uh, in this acquisition is actually going to cost Microsoft money. Oh, it will definitely so cost them money. there's... The, there are provisions in the term sheet that says, hey, if this doesn't go through for regulatory, you still got to pay yeah. Activision Blizzard uh, like a billion oh, dollars or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's about a billion bucks. So, so it's not without cost to fail at one of these things. Not, Of course, that doesn't even include all of the costs of actually pursuing this and going through the regulatory process in, in countless territories. Okay. So here's the weird corporate shenanigans. Again, uh, Square Enix is not disclosing forecasts for this current fiscal year. What? Yeah. What? Are they, they even allowed to do that? They are allowed to do that. And actually, we've seen uh, GameStop hasn't been doing forecasts for the last year. Okay, yeah, but we're, we kind of expect that from GameStop. GameStop I'm is just, going the way I'm of the saying, dodo. I, I'm just <laughs> saying you don't want to throw in, you don't want to be in that company. Oh, that's fair enough. For I mean, take that how you but want. You it... don't want to be in that company. I promise you've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible t-shirt. It is a terrible t-shirt. Uh, Square Enix, so not disclosing uh, forecasts. They say that it's due to economic trends. That's uh, foreign exchange volatility, macroeconomic uncertainty due to inflation, the impact of sales of new titles due to disruption in the global supply chain. I, I'm sorry, what? That one I don't is, understand. What does that even mean? Are they talking about, are they talking about uh, physical copies? I don't think so. I, I don't know. Digital is such a huge portion of the of the mix right now. It's like, yeah, anywhere between 70 to like 90 percent. All right. And here's the one that gets me. OK. The unknown cost of transferring IT systems related to the sale of the Western studios. How do you not know what it's going to cost before you Why close the deal? Why is it unknown? I don't that know. It doesn't make any sense. What are you what are you doing? Baby, uh, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's not how any of this anyway, works. Anyway, so really weird quarter from Square Enix. Um, and that Outriders thing is kind of floating out there. I'm kind of waiting to see what happens when people can fly reports. Yeah. Uh, and, and what they have to say about it. So, we'll see. Alright, Nintendo, what's up? Alright, let's talk the House of Mario. And what the heck is going on with them? <laughs> He's flipping everybody off lately. That's What's not up with that? Real. Oh my god, we are not talking. Do you know how you know it's not real? Because he has five fingers in that. And Mario really only has four fingers like Mickey Mouse. He technically does not have a middle finger. Mario cannot physically flip you off with a middle finger that okay. he does not have. Okay, so we're not talking about all of the shenanigans over on Twitter right now. That's Weird not happening. Corporate shenanigans. That's no, that is fucked corporate shenanigans. Whoa! <laughs> so i will have you know that i don't know that man has ever dropped the first f-bomb on an episode i i actually don't think i have that's a new one congratulations to everyone including me yeah but let's talk about nintendo because that's much more interesting than talking about elon musk and his nonsense at twitter 
So let's talk about uh, the earnings for the first half of the fiscal year. Ninty is up overall, which is kind of interesting, especially considering that many other companies in Japan are not. Mm-hmm. Net sales are up 5.2% to 656 billion yen or $4.7 billion US. Operating profit is up 0.2%. It's small, but it's important to 220 billion yen or $1.6 billion US. They've had to adjust their forecast down slightly. So like 2.7%, but so as everybody else. Yeah, that's not surprising right now. It, but this, Except for Square Enix, which is not sharing its forecast. Whatever. <laughs> Even... <laughs> <laughs> Just shenanigans all the way Schrodinger's, down. Schrodinger's forecast. Schrodinger's forecast. Is exactly. the forecast dead or alive in that box? The world may Who never knows? know. It's Who in knows? a quantum state. It's in a quantum state. Um, so it's noteworthy, though, because Nintendo is usually very aggressive on their forecast, and they will opt to not shift it until the absolute last minute. True. That's what they tend to do. Like, especially with unit sales, they've been doing this for a number of years. They're like, we're going to hit this target. We're going to. Okay, guys, we're not going to hit this target. We're going to miss it. But they won't they won't do that until the absolute last minute. But I think they're trying to hedge right now because everything is so very uncertain. So that's what's going on with Nintendo's forecast. Nintendo Switch sales, including hardware and software, was up overall 5.6% year over year. Hardware itself, however, is down 19%. Again, not a surprise. Switch is in its seventh year. Not a surprise. We are we are in late stage of the Switch. And because they did not have a hardware refresh because mm-hmm. of the component issues, I think that we're going to see... It would not surprise me that in 2023, we see the announcement of whatever's coming next. And I am praying, full on praying, that it retains the Switch's form factor. The Switch form factor is just genius. It honestly is. Um, so software is up year over year, uh, 1.2%. This is from their earnings QA. So over 36 million active subscribers are on the Nintendo Switch Online service. Nintendo also said that it would not raise the price of the Nintendo Switch even if the Japanese yen is weak. Big hat tips to Silicon Era for that translation because I went to look at the transcript and I'm like, oh, this is all in Japanese. I can't read this. Hmm. So very, very thank you to Silicon Era for that. No big changes in the software sales chart. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe continues to lead the way. Animal Crossing is holding on to the second spot, followed by Smash and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. The Nintendo Switch has now sold 114 million units life to date. Software is outselling hardware for the first time in the Switch's history. But something I did want to note, this should have happened years and years and years ago. For any other platform, yeah. I think what is so interesting here is, and you talked about this when we covered earnings, I want to say maybe three quarters ago. Sure. And it was Nintendo switching from, maybe it was longer, I don't even know at this point. It might point. have been Time's last year. Uh, that they were shifting from a get a switch into every house to get multiple switches It was actually around this time last okay. year. Okay, all right, great. When we were reporting on earnings. So what um, what leadership at Nintendo had been saying is that they want they wanted multiple switches in every home, which is great. I, I agree, we have many switches in our house. It's a great Platform. Many switches in this house. Many switches. So many switches. I'm not talking about. Never mind. So many switches. So many switches. So the fact that we are we are finally seeing software outstrip hardware in terms of so, in terms of sales, rather, it's not it's not surprising. This should have happened years ago. You know, we're gonna 
with the bigger consoles, so we're talking about the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series consoles, you're not likely to have more than one of those in a house. We're the, in exception. A tradition- we're the exception of that rule. Look, we're the exception to almost all the rules because we are weird. We are yes. a weird house full of a bunch of weird people. That's just how it is. And that's okay. We, we like our family, our silly little life. <laughs> so at any rate, that's not surprising. That's the way things should be going. We are likely going to be seeing that for the foreseeable until the new Nintendo console, whatever it happens to be, is announced and released. Yes. So finally, I want to talk about this joint partnership that Nintendo filed paperwork for alongside their quarterly earnings. So they ended up entering into a joint partnership with DNA. So that's D-E-N-A. So now they partnered with them on a number of their existing mobile titles correct absolutely so for those that don't know dna has been around for a really long time in a number of capacities but settled into mobile and social game development in the mid-aughts they have been working together since about 2015 they entered into what nintendo is referring to as a business and capital alliance in 2015 to strengthen nintendo accounts nintendo announced in their quarterly earnings that they are entering into this joint partnership with dna resulting in Nintendo Systems Limited. Now, that does not mean that DNA is going away. It means that they are creating a new entity for this joint partnership. Yeah, they have, they're their own company. They are. So DNA is responsible specifically for server infrastructure on a number of Nintendo's mobile games, including Super Mario Run, Mario Kart on mobile, Fire Emblem Heroes, and of course, the beloved Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. Mm. According to the filing, quote, the joint venture company will research and develop as well as create value-added services to further reinforce Nintendo's relationships with its its consumers. So the other portion of this is that Nintendo Systems Limited will have 5 billion yen, so around $36 million um, of capital to begin with to focus on R&D and, quote, operations to strengthen the digitalization of Nintendo's business. So this is all moving Nintendo forward, not necessarily kicking and screaming, but definitely moving into the digital age where they have not often wanted to be, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that is what's going on with Nintendo. Some interesting stuff with the joint partnership. Very interesting that the software is finally outselling the hardware, but nothing huge otherwise. Just very normal, very normal fluctuations considering what's going on elsewhere. Yep. All right, more weird corporate shenanigans. Take two is <laughs> take two is actually gonna be really complicated because uh, this is their first full quarter with Zynga. It's the so this is Q two of fiscal twenty twenty three. So these numbers, these percentages are gonna seem huge, like huge, huge swings. But remember, you're taking a twelve point eight billion dollar purchase of Zynga and that company, and you're melding it into an already enormous publisher with Take Two. Mm-hmm. So net revenue was up sixty two percent to one point three nine four billion dollars. Uh, which landed about in the middle of their guidance. Okay. Um, operating expenses were also higher than guidance, though, uh, at $849 million, which So the guidance was $849 million to $859 million, and they were at $932 million. Oh, that's, that's, up, that's up significantly. It is, and they're up 144%. And again, that's due to Zynga, but they were outside of guidance, and that's not good. No, that's not usually good. Yep. Zynga... Zynga has not been traditionally very good at keeping their operating expenses under control. 
quite yeah. frankly. Their OPEX well, is usually a mess. We're going to get there because the net operating loss was $252.5 million, down from an operating profit of $20.1 million. Again, this merger acquisition is, is messing with things, but here's where things get a little dicey. Okay. Net loss was $257 million. Guidance was a, a loss of $160 million to $144 million. Oh, no. So that net loss is huge. That's not just because of Zynga. No. No, there's, there's no way. There's other stuff going on here. Um, net bookings were just barely in the guidance range at 1.505 billion, and the range started at 1.5. Oof. Yeah. So really, just edged it in there. Uh, but they missed recurrent consumer spending and digitally delivered net booking growth. Okay. Well, let's look at their let's look at their offerings. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at them. Uh, I see NBA yep. and I see WWE. Yep. And Tiny Tina's Wonderland. What what else is going on? Yeah, exactly. Like, what else do they have? Aside from Zynga's Forever franchises and, mm -hmm. you know, they, so I, I just, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see what else they're doing. But this is the thing. And, and again, with Zynga in there, it makes it really tough. But Take-Two has always had wild swings. They have. And yeah. that's because of Rockstar. Rockstar drives a lot of Take-Two. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, all righty. So they lowered guidance across the board, net revenue, operating expenses, net bookings, EPS loss per share. But the big miss is net loss. Previous guidance for the full year was a loss of 438 million to 398 million. Take two is now expecting a net loss of 674 million to 631 million dollars. Oh no. Yeah. So they say that the lowered revision in net bookings, uh, that piece of it is due to lower expectations from mobile and changes in the release slate, as well as $50 million in uh, foreign exchange headwinds. Oh, boy. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of the same notes. Lots of economic uncertainty leading to instability. And again, games are pandemic-proof. We've proven that, but they're well, not inflation and recession It's not proof. even that they're pandemic-proof. It's that they're pandemic-positive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are seeing, of course, Zynga have a profound impact on Take-Two's profile. On the earnings call, Take-Two President Strauss Zelnick said that Zynga President Frank Jabot and his team have fully evaluated Take-Two's mobile portfolio, making recommendations for reorganization, sharing best practices and tools, and portfolio adjustments. Yeah, but the portfolio adjustment being that they were going to they shut down off. They shut down PlayDots. Yeah. Uh, and then moved the game over. Which, I mean, from an organizational perspective, makes a lot of sense. But not keeping the talent does yep. not. Yep. Uh, Take-Two is targeting $100 million in cost savings from the merger, as well as reaching $500 million in annual net bookings at some point. Like, they didn't put a date on that, which is weird. Like, we're going to reach that. Okay, but Sure. When... Yeah, I can see that. I mean, look, mobile is down, period. It is. Like, it's really down right now. And it'll eventually bounce back, but nobody knows when. Right, and that's what's driving most of the reduction in net bookings outlook. Yeah, that's so. A couple of other notes here: GTA Five is now at 170 million units. That's up five million from the Q1 report. So five million units for a game that came out in 2013. I literally cannot with that. Uh, NBA 2K23 is off to a strong start. Five million units selling with two million active daily, uh, two million daily active users. Okay. Uh, Red Dead Redemption Two is now sold in 60, 46 million units. Okay. Uh, so here's the revenue mix. 45% is Zynga, 36% is 2K, 18% is Rockstar, and 1% is Private Division. That's right now. The moment GTA 6 comes out, that is going to get shaken up in a huge, huge way. 
Yeah. Um, We'd be looking at Rockstar taking an enormous percent of that pie. Absolutely. So analysts were very interestingly a bit salty <laughs> on the call. Analysts pushing... have not been salty in such a long time on these calls that it's been kind of disappointing. I love it when they get a little yeah. salty. So Take-Two actually has a very positive outlook for the next fiscal year. Okay. Uh, but the analysts are very strongly focusing on the mobile downward trends. Yep. So in response, Zelnick hints at upcoming releases that clearly unannounced ones or those with undisclosed release dates like GTA 6, which we obviously know is in development and seems to be relatively far along. Sure. Um, the leak, you know, hurt in terms of, you know, developer morale, but it didn't doesn't change anything for the development. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're still trucking along. Um, so Zelnick does say that most of it's related to mobile and a significant amount of it is foreign exchange as well. I, I think this is bold. I think if they don't, if they're not sure if, if GTA six comes out next year, okay, sure. Fine. Your expectations here suddenly look more reasonable, but if GTA six sure. doesn't hit in fiscal 24, which it may not, I, I don't know. I think it's very likely that it's going to hit in Q4. Or, uh, I'm sorry, Q3? Ca calendar Q4, fiscal Q3. Fiscal Q3, yeah. Or potentially in fiscal Q4, which is January to March of 2024. I mean, maybe let's, I mean, we'd have to go back and take a look at when Red Dead 2 came out to see what that cadence could potentially be. I, I think uh, GTA 5 came, ended up coming out in like October 2013. Yeah, that. but again, that was 10 years ago almost. And we're, we're looking at a very different marketplace that has very, very crowded release schedules, especially heading into the holiday season. So I, you know what? I don't agree with Zelnick on this one. Uh, mobile trends are trending down. We do not know when they are going to trend back up. Zynga has been really strong with their portfolio for a number of years. And the fact that they comprise 45% of Take-Two's overall earnings is says a lot about what those studios are capable of. However, if users are not spending, they are going to continue to miss those recurrent spend markings and they're going to continue to miss out mm -hmm. on net bookings. So I don't agree with Zelnick here. I think they're in a whole world of hurt unless they have some big, big swings next year. Yeah, and it, it was more than one analyst who was... <laughs> Salty. really salty god i love it i love it when analysts get salty yep all right last earnings for this show amanda take us speaking, through unity speaking of an abundance of salt there's gonna be a lot of salt here so if you are at your sodium intake <laughs> for this episode drink a glass of water folks Woo! yeah yeah we're gonna we're about to salinate you yeah this is about to get real salty i i used to like covering earnings for unity i really hate it now um, so earnings for Unity for Q3 of this fiscal revenue, revenue is up 13% year over year to $322.9 million. I'll just go into the breakdown a little bit. Create Solutions revenue, which is Unity itself uh, for developers, was $128.6 million, an increase of 54%. Operate Solutions revenue was $171.7 million, a decrease of 7%. Operate Solutions is their you know, live ops stuff that they do for and it's the monetization. It's the monetization stuff. So it's not doing very well because of course it's not strategic partnerships and other revenue was $22.6 million an increase of 28%. We're going to get to the partnerships angle because there's a lot to unpack there and I'm not ready to do it yet. Loss from operations was 
$239.6 million, or 74% of revenue. That's the piece that really worries me. When you are spending 74% of your revenue and you're posting huge losses like that, it's, it's, it's not good. This is bad, especially con- considering that the losses from, like, the losses in comparison to the same time last year was uh, 126.8 million or 44%. So they were actually trending in the right direction before. Yeah. Now, most of that loss can be attributed to research and development, which gobbled up 248 yeah. million dollars. Yeah. Something like that. It that's, was what's re- in, that's what's in the notes. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what they ended up doing. So uh, investing in R&D is so intelligent. It's such a great way to ensure that you're investing in your business. However, what is the plan here? I, I guess the plan is to, to, to firmly lodge the stock in the toilet because that's where, that's where it's headed. Well, that's the way most stocks are headed right now. But the big issue here is that if they do not start coming up with a plan in how to, you know, what they're going to be doing with that research and development, all it is is R&D for R&D's sake, which means that they should not be a public company. Yep. They should go, they should find a way to be, go back to being private. Well, you know, I, I hear there's this guy who bought <laughs> Oh, there is nothing that could possibly go wrong with that. Yep. So stock has dropped 81% over the course of this year. Banana. See, yeah. So stocks are down, but they ain't down that much. They're down significantly. We'll revisit the whole stock thing in a quick second. So let's talk about what's going on with the Unity and Iron Source situation. Unity and Iron Source have completed their merger. In a, bo- in a blog post can- attributed to John Riccatello on Unity's website, the company addresses, dr- addresses, addresses, apparently I'm having problems talking today, addresses a couple of big questions. One of the big questions around Unity is its perceived shift away from supporting game developers. The blog post is part of an attempt to calm fears, saying, quote, our goal is to make the tools that make it easier for developers to realize their vision and that includes supporting that vision with resources to help them turn their games into sustainable businesses if and when they choose to do so, which Iron Source will help us to do as they too are heavily focused on games. Okay, before we move on, that is a very gentle way of saying you're fucking stupid if you don't if you don't have thank uh, you for MTX. pulling thank you for pulling that out of my head because this is this is the same person that went on like Riccatello is. This is not good. This is not good. This is not a good way to ameliorate fears and get people to trust your platform. This is not the way. There are plenty of developers out there that don't require microtransactions, paid DLC, or anything like that in order to be considered successful. I'd like to point you to vampire survivors. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. This is a game that launched for like two bucks. So sticky, that game. And it is just so sticky. I mean, look, you can have thoughtful microtransactions in a game. And if you're, you, you want to do live ops, then do it. But you have to evaluate whether or not that's both good for your company, because supporting live ops, supporting microtransactions, having to build in game economies, that's hard work. And it's really, really difficult to maintain. So anyway, that's not great. Iron Source will help as they are also heavily focused on games. Sure. Yeah, I agree. Fine. But that doesn't change anything. It doesn't change how people are perceiving Unity. The other piece of this is Unity's tip away from PC and console toward mobile. And considering just the conversation that we had about, I don't know, mobile's downward trends, tread with caution. Mm-hmm. Quote, 
While mobile is, of course, a huge platform for games with 70% of all top mobile games globally made with Unity, we remain committed to developing features for PCs, consoles, and XR. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm not really bol- bolstered by that. No. Like, literally at all. Yeah. That just is just <laughs> like, it's okay. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. We're just going to go do some shady backroom dealings real quick. You won't notice, though. But But wait, there's more. God, talking about weird corporate shenanigans. Yeah, so yesterday, right around earnings, or a little bit before earnings, uh, Bloomberg came out with a scathing expose specifically focused at Riccatello's behavior as CEO. We have been talking about when this story was going to break for literal years. Yep. Because ever since they IPO'd and people have been paying very close attention to Riccatello in in general, I just knew. I knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. So the first piece, and it gets bad. Oh, God, I it mean, gets this is so bad. bad. This is bad in, like, there's multiple ways. Like, it's bad in so it's many ways. so bad. So first up, um, apparently Rick Hello is now married. He was dating, why, he was dating the head of HR, or his chief people officer, Elizabeth Brown. Now, the way this rolled out was so freaking weird. He revealed the news to staff in a meeting in the company buildings in the office's atrium in 2018. And apparently around that time is when he told the board. But sources say that they the two of them were together from 2016. Which means that there was probably an improper relationship going on. Now remember, he's her boss, first so of all. So gross. But also you're hiding that from the board. And my guess is in most employee handbooks... If there is a relationship like that, it has to be disclosed, especially if you're the CEO and then you've got the head of HR. Who are you supposed to go to with a complaint against about the CEO when the head of HR is dating the CEO? Well, I'd like to continue to remind everyone that listens to this show, people ops and HR are not there for you. They're there for the company. Yes. So she left the company in 2019, right? Um, so... Why is it a huge issue when your CEO dates the head of this HR? Is, what, like, what do you mean, why? I, well, I'm going to answer the question. Okay. So, Riccatello was accused in a 2019 civil suit filed by former Vice President Ann Evans of sexual impropriety. She alleged that, uh, in this suit, that Riccatello aggressively propositioned her. I believe... Ugh, I don't want to say the words. Like, it makes me feel... Yeah. No, it's just, it's yucky. On a on an early 2016 work trip and threatened her into silence when she declined, Evans said that she had no recourse to file a complaint because she was a recruiter. Oh. She was a, she was a talent, uh, talent person. Oh, God. So she couldn't even report this because her boss, Elizabeth Brown, was dating Riccatello. <sighs> so Unity fired Evans, claiming she engaged in misconduct. The case went to private arbitration. We're likely never to know the outcome. Usually what happens is everybody is is gag-ordered after arbitration. Yup. Um, of course, this is why we have pushed and pushed and pushed. And not we, but... To end private... Exact, to, arbit- end, to end mandatory Ar- arbitration. Mandatory arbitration is bad, actually. And if something happens at your company and they force you into silence so that you can get some kind of personal justice and closure... That sucks. It sucks for the sucks for workers. End it. End it. End it. End it. Yep. So, but beyond this alleged sex pest behavior, uh, Riccatello has apparently lied about some high-profile companies that Remember? he claimed 
Remember how I said we were going to get to the partnerships and I wasn't I wasn't ready to unpack this yet? Yeah. I'm ready to unpack it. Unpack it. So in interviews, he's talked about these clients that are using Unity for these huge projects, right? Yeah. Among them, NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs and CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, right? Uh, there's also MEC, which is a Canadian camping and hiking supply retailer similar to REI here in the States. Oh yeah, no, I've never, I've actually never heard of them. I've definitely never shopped at some, like, some of their locations yeah, in Canada. Yeah, so NEC is, has no knowledge of this whatsoever. Of course and, they don't. And uh, NASA and CERN, they're like, yeah, we did like a couple of little things, but these are not integral to our operations. <laughs> like, what is he talking oh, about? Oh, the schadenfreude here is just glorious. I mean, you've got a CEO who is out, out there lying about how people are using huh. the company's product. What was, what happened the last time that we had... We had some people making some lies to investors. What happened there? Uh, which ones are you talking about? There's so well, many. I'm talking specifically about CD Projekt, yeah. Oh, oh, that, they're stock tanked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here! I, don't, I just don't think the Bloomberg story has gotten has gotten the play that it deserves yet. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, I I would agree because the today the stock is up 16% yeah. a day after the I report mean, went live. Unless Unity investors are like, Lion's awesome! Telling somebody you want to bang them in Paris is awesome. I mean, maybe maybe that's the brand of investor that Unity has. What? <laughs> what? I, they were in, I believe they were in Paris on a work trip. And they had I a one-on-one -on -one dinner. Get, I get that it's the city of love, baby. I it ain't, No, this wasn't love. No, 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 no. Do like, not confuse. But like, that's gross. J'accuse, do not confuse. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm a romantic. That's this not was, romance. No, no. But also in my head, now I'm thinking about going to Paris on a romantic vacation. So when are you taking me, baby? I, I don't know. But on that on that <laughs> note, uh, we're going to take a little break. To plan our trip to Paris, To apparently. plan our trip to Paris. And then we'll come back with the bottom half of the show. Virtual Economy is an F-squared initiative, and along with pro bono business consulting for up-and-coming developers, it's a way we are working to give back to the community that has already given us so much. To find out more about F-squared and the services we can provide, including pitch prep, media training, mock reviews, and business strategy guidance, visit our website at fsquared.biz. And we are back just in time for Investment Interlude, where we talk about money, money. Money? Money! money. Oh God! We did it at the same time. We're off the rails, folks. <laughs> you're here. For, you're here for the dying days of the Twitter that lives in my brain. <laughs> but not the dying days of virtual economy. You're stuck with us. Congratulations, you suckers. I love you all. <laughs> all right. So first up, the EU is now ready to dive into an in-depth investigation of Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard. The European Commission says that its preliminary investigation identified a number of competition concerns, including. Reduction of competition with regard to distribution of console and PC video games. Okay. Now, this includes multi-game subscription services and or cloud gaming, cloud game streaming. So, that covers both Game Pass and it covers PlayStation Plus and uh, GeForce Now and the dog that's grumbling by my side. Um, so, this... But also, this one is weird. They also included PC operating systems. Wait, wait, wait. What? Yeah. I don't really understand this. Apple, which is, of course, the next largest competitor, has next to no interest in games on its uh, laptop and desktop operating system. No. You know, it's different, obviously, on mobile where it has a little bit of interest. Uh, but... A smidgen. A smidgen. So Apple's effectively removed itself from the competition and there's no rival to Windows when it comes to gaming. Not because there is a competitor that can't that can't compete, but because there is a, a competitor that absolutely could, 
but doesn't, want doesn't to. really have much interest in doing it. Doesn't really want to. Uh, so the EU parrots some of the UK's concerns around foreclosing competition, which means blocking out competition, as a result of acquiring highly successful games and franchises like Call of Duty. Of note, and despite Microsoft direct statements and assurances, the European Commission is worried about Microsoft restricting distribution of Activision Blizzard games on other consoles or making it onerous for competitors like Sony to access them. Again, I'm going to refer you to the note that from the Square Enix thing. Seems very strange considering Sony just announced that Final Fantasy 16 will be a timed exclusive for at least six months. Like, what is the difference? Like, okay, so just, just real quick, real quick. We've had timed exclusives... And forever. full exclusives for basically ever. Yes. We've had console exclusives forever. What is the difference here? Is it because Call of Duty is already so successful on multiple platforms? Uh, honestly, I think Microsoft's case would be so much better if uh, Modern Warfare 2 did not do as well as it did. I think Modern Warfare 2 doing as well as, as, well as it has is actually going to hurt Microsoft. Because if it had followed in Vanguard's footsteps where they could show that Call of Duty is diminishing in, in, in popularity, then they would actually be doing better. I, I don't know. I think this whole thing's really weird. Yeah. Um, but the European Commission seems very focused on competition, but it doesn't mention the benefits to consumers, lower cost access to games through programs like Game Pass. Uh, so who is this supposed to help? That's my big question. Is this supposed to help it's Sony? It's supposed or is to help supposed corporations. To... Yeah. Other corporations. Not actually help people but other corporations. Which is not, from my understanding, the spirit of anti-competitive investigations. But also you and I are not experts in that field. It's true. So the commission says it'll make its decision by March 23rd, 2023. PUBG Corp owner Crafton has announced that it is purchasing Neon Giant, the dev behind the cyberpunk action RPG, The Ascent. Actually very much enjoyed that yes, game. Yes, we loved that game. It was a very, very good game. Neon Giant, which is based in Sweden, is working on an open-world first-person shooter. I honestly sounds good. Sounds good. I'm pretty. I'm pretty in with that. That sounds great. Crafton also plans to open a new Canadian studio to lead the development of a project called The Bird That Drinks Tears. Our, guys, Twitter already exists. <laughs> see that one coming that's good you really didn't <laughs> oh, that's real good. all right keep all right. us going uh remedy and 505 games have formally announced control 2 previously called project heron we knew this was control 2 this is not a surprise but i am pleasantly surprised that they have again publicly detailed key terms of the deal they did this gosh that was back. so good it was great because i was writing the game dev business handbook at the time and i'm like oh my god somebody published terms yeah, i can include it was this. it was 2017 i think when they when they talked about it it was either late 2016 or early 2017 yes. it was it was great cuz i think i even covered it maybe at mike mike.com when i was working there that makes sense i was trying to introduce business coverage yeah uh so the development budget for Control 2 is $50 million. They are splitting that cost. Okay. So 505 is funding the game the game development to the tune of 25 million euro. I'm sorry, it was 50, it's 50 million euro now. Well, Oof. what's the difference right now? Or whatever. It's the same. It's basically right. on par. So 25 million euro. Um, Remedy got 7.75 million from 505 for the first Control. 
Uh, Remedy will retain ownership of the IP still. Very nice. Once again, the two companies will split costs. Each will pay 50% of development, marketing, and post-launch expenses. And they will evenly split the revenue. Last time, 505 received 45% of royalties. Okay. So the proportions have changed. But what we can see here very clearly is the development budget has increased significantly. Oh. By at least 10 million euros. Man, that maybe that means that control is going to be that much bigger. I, I mean, I love... I'm a huge Remedy fan. I've said it. Over Control and over. is a fantastic. Control. Game. I played everything. I I did not 100 percent that game, but that game I was great. I absolutely loved it. Uh, according to last week's earnings report, Heron is or maybe was now it w- at the time it was in the pre-prototype phase. This may mean that it's moved on to active prototyping, though. Wouldn't that everybody nice? is happy about where think where the vision is, and they're like, yeah. "Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Let's announce it." And I'm uh, excited. Yeah. So that, that is that's everything from Investment Interlude. What what does that mean? It's time for quick hits. Okay, I mean that's fine. Yeah, we have like two quick hits. <laughs> They're extremely quick, quick hits. Yes, I'm gonna take both of them. Netflix has announced it is teaming up with Microsoft Studio, the Coalition, to create both a Gears of War live action film and an animated series. Now they've labeled it an adult animated series, which I don't think means what what I think it means. It means it's for grown-ups, but it's not for grown-ups. I, I actually <laughs> have a term here for it, and I'm not going to say it. No, like like what you would call this because it's Gears of War. Now I just I'm going to I'm going to walk you through where my head's at. No. So the no. locust in Gears of War are informally called grubs. Nope. And if this were a different kind of adult thing, you know, effing. So when you put those two words together, you've got grub. Nope. Right? Grub. No. No. You're just like, it's Stop just, it. Just like, mm, yeah, grub. Are you done? I'm done. Thank you. I'm so glad you're done because I'm done. <laughs> grub. Oh my God, stop. <laughs> okay, while he's chuckling over there, I'm going to continue with quick hits. Wizard. Michael. You're you're a disaster. <laughs> Wizards of the Coast is finally building what it calls an inclusion review process into the development of Dungeons and Dragons material. This comes after racist material made its way into the updated Spelljammer book released earlier this year. In a blog post, D&D creative executive Chris Perkins says, quote, Previously, inclusion reviews were done at the discretion of the product lead, who identified which pieces of a product needed an outside inclusion review. The studio's new process mandates that every word, illustration, and map must be reviewed by multiple multiple people out multiple outside cultural consultants prior to publication. Inclusion reviews are now mandated at multiple points in the creation process, including the text creation phase, art creation phase, and the final product review phase. Wizards will engage cultural and inclusion consultants for this work. About goddamn time yeah we're about we're about done with the whole oopsie doopsie we did a racism yeah the hadaji i think were the were the race in the Spelljammer book which that Ooh! was uh that was legitimately and not cool especially because it came hot on the heels of an entire module with adventures that were written by people of color like this is this is a long time coming the fact that this wasn't baked into their process as a mandate until this point is a problem but i'm glad it's being fixed right in this year of 2022 yep and those were quick hits yeah and now it's the labor report i feel like it's the labor report but it's actually just a 
shitting on Activision. No, there's more. There's more than that in here. But it's mostly Activision. I, I mean, ish. We're gonna start with Activision. Yeah. <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's let's get started on Activision. All right. Take us through the first story. So unsurprisingly, Activision is doing even more union busting. Last wow, week, this yeah. is my shocked face. Last week, the company asked the National Labor Relations Board to postpone counting Blizzard Albany's union votes. You may recall that Blizzard Albany, formerly Vicarious Visions, uh, their QA group was given the green light by the NLRB to unionize, uh, in large part because crickety crash crash, in large part because of pay discrepancies. So QA making significantly less than literally everybody at the studio. Even though QA is is absolutely integral to mm-hmm. every piece of software successfully shipping. Yes. And not just not just video games, software, software. because as you start to see Twitter start to <laughs> enter its technical death spiral because they fired all the people who knew how to maintain the the They platform. just fired all the people. They just fired all the people. Well, that's later. Uh all right. So yeah, it's not great. Uh the uh Communications Workers of America which uh which the union is uh, forming underneath. Yep. Fired back with a pointed statement accusing Activision Blizzard of attempting to, quote, muzzle workers' voices. I do not see after the NLRB approved this business unit that they're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, we changed our mind. We're not going to let we're not going to let them unionize by themselves. J.K. Lol. Yeah, that's that's definitely not what's going to happen. But of course, this is only just part of the story as the CWA begins to bargain with Activision Blizzard at Raven. Activision is demanding that the union pay for time lost by having union reps at the bargaining table. Great. This is shitty. I, I like, mean, it's just like, y'all, you, many corporations engage in wage theft all the time, mm-hmm. which is the reason to have a union. So anyway, the union, of course, paid in order to keep Activision Blizzard at the table. In return, the union reminded the publisher that it was required to make up the lost wage increase for the bargaining unit employees that the NLRB determined was, I don't know, illegally withheld. So let's recap real quick. This is Raven we're talking about, the QA group. When Activision turned around and said, hey, we're giving QA people a raise at all of our studios, but, but not you, Raven, because you're because you're in the middle of unionization and, and we're not allowed to. We're and not legally allowed to. Their argument was that if we give you a raise, then it might be considered a uh, union busting and an attempt to uh, dissuade people from from unionizing. Sure, Activision, which clearly has no compunction about union busting in every other way, suddenly is worried about it. Uh-huh, sure. So all that to say, Activision Blizzard really doesn't like unions, but here's a summary of the negotiating points and where the CWA says that they stand. Activision rejected the union's demand that the company be barred from altering the contract in ways that disadvantaged workers um, during the that disadvantaged workers, sorry, during the term of the contract. Yeah, that's literally why you have union. Yeah. So essentially what Activision is saying is, no, we're not going to agree, even if we come to a collective bargaining agreement with you, that we can't alter the collective bargaining agreement. The whole idea behind a collective bargaining agreement is to create a set of protections for labor so that the so that the company can't just come in and be like, hey, you know that two, three, four weeks of guaranteed vacation we said you have? We're actually reducing that now. Yeah, we're going to reduce that to you get weekends, maybe if you're nice. Yeah, if, if you're if you're. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, Activision deferred discussion of protections for employees that require reproductive health care, which is an issue raised since the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And um, I don't know, it's uh, negatively impacting people around this country. So for those that are listening outside of the United States, I'm sure that you've heard this. The the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and even as a Canadian, I didn't quite understand when I moved here, especially that America is all about states' rights. It's messed up. And it's so they 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 want all of the different states to be able to just kind of like make up their own rules as they go. It doesn't really work like that in Canada. So it's it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around. But anyway, Roe v. Wade um was the the precedent under which reproductive health and abortions were like protected essentially mm-hmm. under law. So that doesn't, that's not a thing anymore. And it's really hurting people yeah. because it has been, states are now making, making things up essentially as they go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Activision deferred discussion of guaranteed remote work options. It did not respond to the requested 10% increase for Activision Blizzard QA testers nationwide. Activision denied without explanation the CWA's quote, responsible union company relationship proposal i imagine this is very similar to sim, uh, similar to microsoft's uh, labor neutrality agreement right but there but activision is very clearly not yeah labor neutral. no they're not and i tried to find some information about this but i could not find this if proposal. you do know if you know anything about this and you want to get at us just dm us or email us that would be really helpful uh, Activision did not reply to the union's proposals around job definitions and structures, including pay for performance leadership duties, as well as codified FTE status. Now, FTE status is full time. Yeah. So the reason why that's important is because QA is typically hourly. Yep. And that you can still be hourly and be a full time employee, but being a full time employee guarantees your hours. Exactly. Activision did not budge on its demand to be able to outsource QA worker jobs to third-party contractors. Unilateral decision making that it's a unilateral decision that would allow them to change work hours or simply cut the department without union involvement. Again, this is why you have a union contract. So the union contract is intended to protect labor. So if Activision can just say, okay, fine, we're going to sign a collective bargaining agreement with you and we're going to outsource all of the QA and therefore none of you have jobs anymore. Like that's... That's horrid. That's a kick in the teeth. It's horrid. And they would absolutely do that. They would 100% do that. It sure feels like it. Additionally, the CWA proposed blanket benefits of union negotiation to all Activision Blizzard employees nationwide. That would be huge. And of course, Activision is not going to be happy with that. No, not at all. The union also told Activision that it would continue to negotiate around Activision Blizzard's track record around sex and gender discrimination. Yep. In other words, he, he, just because you settled with the EEOC and, and just because you're dealing For with- For your paltry $18 million. Yeah. That's pocket change. And, and yeah, you've got California's Civil Rights Department, Civil Rights Commission. I can't remember what they changed the name to. It's the former DFEH. Yeah, you're dealing with them, but you you still have to deal with labor over these issues because yep. it's labor that you hurt. Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, um, things continue to be garbage for uh, for folks that are trying to unionize at Activision Blizzard. It's an uphill battle. We're rooting for them, of course, because, you know, QA, as I said, as we always say, QA is mm-hmm. an essential piece of software development 
especially in something as complicated as video games where there are so many use cases and there are so many branching options for moving through a game. Yeah, if all you, the user inputs like, that exist just, in interactive medium are, are it's fodder so, for breaking. It's so, so important from the teeniest, tiniest little indie game all the way up to AAA titles. QA is essential. Pay your QA workers well, respect them, cherish them. They are everything. Just like your producers. Yes, definitely. Uh, Last thing on the Activision front, and this feels like a perfectly timed story for a lot of reasons. Uh, Last week, acclaimed composer Sarah Shackner, who has done a number of games, and she was also, wasn't she also the composer on Prey? Did we find out? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So the new Predator prequel. Yes, um, yes, she was definitely on that. Yeah, she's moving away from scoring Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and Warzone after accusations of severe challenges with Modern Warfare 2's director of sound design, Stephen Miller. In her statement, she says, quote, over the past couple of months, the working dynamic with the audio director has become increasingly challenging, and I don't see any path forward. Again, this is only one side of the story, and especially in the wake of the Helena Taylor stuff, you know, we need to be really careful. Um, but it is just notable that given all of the issues at Activision Blizzard, here we have a key contractor who yeah. is saying, I can't work with this company anymore. Yeah, maybe just treat your people well. And I don't know, like people. Yeah. And they'll stay. Because retention, like if we if we want to just veer off course for a quick second, talent retention should be an integral part of every studio's strategy for ensuring the longevity and health of said studio. Mm-hmm. And part of that talent retention is ensuring that, yes, that there that there are ways to get promoted, that there are ways to move laterally if you don't like the team that you're in or if that mo- work is not moving you. But especially when you're working with contractors, you want contractors to come back over and over and over again. You want them to sing your praises about what a great company you are to work with, what a great team you are to work with. Part of that is setting up boundaries, setting up processes and structures, but the other part of it is leading your team with compassion and empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And it just treat people well, please. Yeah, it's not hard. It's really not that difficult. Yep. All right. All right. Moving forward, we are continuing to see the outward ripple effect of this impending global recession. TechCrunch has reported that Kabam is laying off approximately 35 people or 7% of its 500-person workforce. And while this is not strictly gaming-related, we also have to mention the 11,000 people laid off from Meta, which is about 13% of its 85,000-person staff. And does include people from Reality Labs. Yep. So that's VR. Yeah, working absolutely. On, you know, working on publishing and delivering VR technological improvements and games. And of course, Twitter, which continues its freefall with half its staff laid off. And very recently, the entirety of Twitter gaming. Yep. So that account, and I mean, I, I've had my issues with Twitter, the platform, and I have been one of those people who has responded to Twitter gaming with like, hey, maybe ban the Nazis. Be, but uh, they, they do. They drive a lot of engagement in the gaming community. Yep. And this is now there's just nobody on the nobody's hand is on the wheel, which is essentially the entirety of the of former Twitter. Twitter just in, there's no in communications general. department at Twitter. anymore. No, it's just gone. It's, there, there's it's it's being hollowed out one department at a time. And this isn't just because we're the economy is scary. It's because billionaires are making 
bullshit decisions Mm -hmm. and messing with people's futures. Absolutely. Okay, so this last one, Mike, you're going to have to take me through this one. Well, this isn't the last one, but there are two. Or this next one, rather. There are two kind of biggie ones that are are very complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So last month on episode 140, we covered some weird happenings at Disco Elysium Developer Studio Zone. At that time, founding member of the Zoom Cultural Association, which kind of predated the studio as an organizational structure, right. uh, Martin Luiga posted that a number of key members of the original team have been forced out of the company. These individuals included Robert Kurvitz, who is lead writer on Disco Elysium, Alexander Rostov, who was art director on Disco Elysium, and Helen Heinpier, a writer on the original game and lead writer on the Final Cut kind of expansion right. that came out. I still haven't played the Final Cut, but I am I am very interested in it. Yeah, so the Final Cut, it's kind of a, an improvement across the board. So. Right, it's like the director's cut, essentially, exactly. of the game. yeah, with more voice acting. Lots oh, more voice acting. Oh, love that. Uh, at the time, we suggested that there was likely a lot more to this story that would come out, and this week, we have the inevitable follow-up. Actually, two of them. All right, walk us through it. So first, Kurvitz and Rostov have posted their own account of what happened on Medium. Link is in the show notes, of course. In the post, the two share that Estonian businessman Marcus Liname, an early investor in the studio, sold his stake to another minority shareholder, a company called, uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but Tutrik. Now, the reason, it's funny, we just had a conversation uh, in an interview we'll be posting at the end of this month, Thanksgiving week, we're going to post this, about, you know, one of the general rules is if you're selling equity in your company, you don't want anybody else to have more than half. Exactly. The problem here is when Liname sold to Tutrik, it created what we what we're understanding here is a majority shareholder that isn't the people who originally own the studio. You have to be so careful with that. You do, and th- this is this is not a simple case of stat- the the three people who were mentioned in Martin Luiga's st- uh, medium post good and new company owners bad. It's way more complicated than that. This so is this is an extremely complex. It's an extremely complex thing that we are that Mike is is taking us through here because he did a ton of legwork here. And and uh, honestly, a lot of it is is reading another great report, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, that company, uh, the Tutrik company, is owned by Ilmar Kompas and uh, Tonias Havel. Uh, so remember these names; they're going to be important in a little bit. Corvitz and Rostov allege that Compass and Havel shut them out of daily operations, and then shortly after that, they were terminated. So essentially, they were frozen out. They were rooftopped, if you watched um, <laughs> Silicon Valley. Which we did. Yes. So much of it. The two then allege that Compass and Havel acquired Linamay's stake by fraud, using company funds <gasps> to finance the purchase. If oh, this is no. true, this is clearly improper, regardless of what territory you're in. Yeah. That seems deeply illegal. They also point to Havel's conviction for fraud in a different matter in 2007. What? All right, so... Okay, so buckle up, because there's more. Right, so if you read this story, it's like, oh my god, the new Studio Zaum owners, they're terrible. Like, what is going on? So there is more. Danielle Partiz of Games Industry did an amazing job. She's been investigating this. She got an exclusive statement from Zaum, and she had a number of anonymous sources involved in her reporting as well. She really did a good job here. Now, it's fantastic. The challenging part, and this is kind of me side sidebarring here as uh, someone who was a journalist for a number of years, it's really hard when you are writing a story that is the is in part the company perspective. And the reason for that is, especially today, there is a knee-jerk reaction to believe that company bad, individual, or labor good. 
And quite frankly, I am okay with that knee-jerk reaction. Um, it is the reaction that a lot of us had around the Helena Taylor and Bayonetta 3 story. We need to keep believing labor. Labor does not hold, does not often exercise the power that it has. And it is not organized in a way to exercise the power that labor has. But in some cases, like the Helena Taylor story, it's way more complicated than we originally thought. Everything has nuance to it. It does. So, Studio Zoom says that Kurvitz and an employee named Sander Tall, who it turns out is an alias of Alexander Rostov. This is the weirdest thing. Like, suddenly this guy's alias, Alexander Rostov's alias is in the mix here. That they were terminated for creating a toxic work environment, shirking their duties, verbal abuse directed at colleagues, and gender discrimination. Oh, boy. So now, obviously, right here we see another potential wrinkle in the story because when labor comes forward and leads on a, on a beloved game come forward and say, hey, we were mistreated, you know, people want to believe. Of but course. now you have the company saying, these people were actually toxic. Now, if this was an Activision story, we would be saying like, good, good, I'm glad you got rid of them. So obviously this is a really complicated story because this is a small studio. It's in a uh, an underrepresented part of the world. Estonia does not have a huge amount of develop like development that goes as big as Disco Elysium did, especially. Absolutely. So this is a really this is a really tricky and emotional story. Um, the studio also says that the duo did not perform any work for two years and quote forced colleagues to compensate for their lack of effort. In other words, they collected a paycheck but made other people do their work. So they were not rooftopped. They were lazy. And this is where I, 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 ha I have to say, this is where we have to start reading between the lines. Obviously, nobody can know what happened. But when you have, when you have two employees that say, we were cut out, we were shut out from daily operations, and you have another company saying, we paid them for two years and they did literally nothing, the truth has got to be somewhere in the middle it's, here. Yeah, it's likely in the middle. But because both of these statements, while Corvitz, uh, Kurvitz and Rostov's statement here does seem more plausible uh, that they were cut out. It seems odd to me that they would continue to be paid for two years and, and do nothing. Now, it could be that they there was not a place in the pro they were not at a place in the process for whatever game comes next. Sure. That they could really do a whole lot. Right. But, but we don't but we we're, don't know. We're looking at Kurvitz and and Rostov. So Kurvitz is the lead was the lead writer on mm -hmm. the on the original game. And Rostov is the art director on the game. It, it makes very little sense to me that they would be paid to do nothing when they have such enormous roles. I know. And I mean, part of spinning up whatever comes next is prototyping, research and development. You know, we're not even talking about like building full prototypes, but in the pre-prototype stage where you're doing rapid prototypes and, you know, you're moving through the creative process. We've seen this how many times with huge companies like even BioWare, where they just spin their wheels forever and ever and ever. So I would imagine that even if they weren't necessarily producing work product that was going to be used either in Disco Elysium or in a future game, it's very likely that they weren't just sitting around. Yeah, it could have been very useful failure. Yeah, useful because I mean useful failures in a in a studio environment, in a creative environment, there's there's always something to be learned. So however, yeah. the toxicity here is the big issue. Uh, again, this is weird, but here's the big accusation. Okay. So the new studio owners allege that Kurvitz and Rostov tried to sell studio IP illegally to major publishers. What? In other words, saying, hey, we're the real owners of Disco Elysium. Do you want to, do you maybe want to publish this or do you want to buy this? 
Oh, boy. So it's weird. Now, it seems like no public... No, we know. No publishers bid on this. Now, they could have done their due diligence and sniffed out that they didn't actually have the right to sell anything. Or who knows? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they were just shopping it around to see if there was any interest and they weren't actually trying to sell it. They were just trying to be good agents of the company that they helped found. Right. Again, very hard to figure out what's going on here. Um, and of course, the studio denies the fraud allegations, which is weird because they said specifically he was convicted, which means there would be records of the conviction. So I'm really confused about what's going on there. So I think it's the fraud allegations that the current oh, fraud allegations, the not current the current one, not the previous. So ones. the current allegations where they try where they use, use company, company resources funds. to buy yes. the other minority. So they're denying that. Okay, uh, the studio says it's tripled in size. It now has more than a hundred employees. That's um, tough. That that level of scalability in such a short amount of time is very, very difficult to manage if yeah. you don't have the structures in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle's sources said that employees were reluctant to speak out previously due to feeling they owed Curvitz their jobs, which lends more credence to the toxicity claims. Yeah. Um, games industry also learned that Ed Tomaszewski, uh, co-founder of Take-Two's private division label, has been brought on as Studio Zaum's new president. Look, this story is a very, very tangled mess. And I'm sure we're not done hearing about it. It's going to be very interesting to see how it unfolds in the courts, which is where this is headed in Estonia, where it's really difficult to cover. <laughs> well, we'll just we'll do our best to keep an eye on it. And, and honestly, I from from my perspective, and I, I agree with you on this one, Mike, I do think that the truth is likely somewhere in the middle, but toxicity is toxicity. Yes. And I think that that is, that's the red line for me. Well, and that's the thing. If the toxicity can be evidenced, then that's it right there. You were, you were not, you were not a positive contributor to the workforce. It doesn't the matter. If you, you were a were, negative contributor yes. to the workplace. We had to remove you. Yeah. It's not that it, whether or not they, they created viable work product is something completely different than they made everyone else's lives hell. Right. Again, there's, this is a multi-layered story here. I think Danielle did an amazing job. She of really did. Go read her story. It it's is of fantastic. course linked in the show notes as well. All right. So finally, we want to acknowledge a story that is still developing. So this was, this one is definitely very, very strange. And this one technically has been developing for two years. It has been. So composer Mick Gordon, who scored Doom, Doom Eternal, Prey, Wolfenstein, The New Colossus, and more, has issued a lengthy statement about his falling out with id and Doom Eternal executive producer Marty Stratton. This follows Stratton's open letter posted on Reddit in May of 2020, following Doom Eternal's release at the start of the pandemic. So clearly the working relationship has, I mean, very mildly, I think. (laughs) I think it's... I think it's deteriorated just a bit. I think it's, I think it's Ash. Uh, Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be like the Phoenix either. It's not going to, it's not going to rise more beautifully than than before. Yeah. Um, So anyway, though the two individuals share extremely different accounts of what happened. Stratton paints a picture of delays and personal attacks on its lead audio designer. Now that was in the open letter posted on Reddit in 2020. That's right. Now, on the other side, Gordon's lengthy post on Medium alleges a mismanaged music pipeline, and this one sucks, and improper use of audio assets that were included without compensation. Now, it's important to remember these are allegations, um, although I will say that Mick Gordon's Medium post read like it had gone through a lawyer's hands. It was very clean. At the very clean. least, one lawyer. yeah. So, 
the interesting thing here is, so the reason why this all started is because Marty Stratton posted this open letter on Reddit a couple of years ago. Doom Eternal Collector's Editions came with a digital soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And it had a number of original Mick Gordon uh, pieces that were arranged for the soundtrack. In fact, Mick in the Medium post goes into the whole de- goes into detail about the difference of composing and arranging for a game and then taking that music and arranging it specifically for uh, an original soundtrack. There was fi- there were 57 tracks on the soundtrack and the rest of them were arranged by uh, the lead audio designer who I don't think I grabbed his name uh, from uh, from the post. Um, and people noticed immediately that it was not great arrangements there were overlapping waveforms there were it just sounded wrong it was looping oddly um someplace where um things were cobbled together and the the tempo and the and the uh the time signature changed randomly like it just was not good and listen product. Un- unless you're rush you probably shouldn't be changing time signatures yeah. frequently so so I think everybody, I think the one thing that everybody can agree on based on Marty's post and based on Mick's post is that the tracks, the, the tracks beyond the ones that Mick did by himself were a mess. Yeah. So at least everybody can agree on that. Yeah. Fair enough. So like with anything that we cover with regards to, you know, one side says this, the other side says this, the truth likely lies in the middle somewhere but there are there are a number of lessons that we can take away here Mm -hmm. and and one of the things that i want to point out is that mike actually talks about working with music and licensing and everything like that in the game dev budgeting handbook so i think it's really important that if you are going to work with music literally at all and you don't have somebody on your team that's going to do it Go read the game dev budgeting handbook just to get a better handle on how licensing and working with composers. I, I'll be works. honest, that was my favorite chapter to write out it of was, the two books. It was honestly, I got to listen. I got to listen to some of those conversations. They were fantastic. So one of the one of the first things, and this is applicable across the board. Never, ever, 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 ever work without a contract. I mean this with the, from the bottom, the middle, and the top of my heart with my whole heart. Do not ever work without a contract. If you work without a contract and you take everything in on a handshake deal, you have no protections. Yep. Protect yourself. Your work deserves to be compensated, not just properly and adequately, but well. Yeah. And your rights for your creative product, especially as a contractor, you absolutely need to know what belongs to you, what belongs to the studio, and where that, where and how that work product is going to be used. Never, ever, ever work without a contract. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that was one of the things that, that Mick Gordon talks about in his medium post where the, uh, according to Mick, the, uh, the original soundtrack as part of the collector's edition was announced on stage at E3 and he hadn't even been told about it and he didn't have a contract, so he couldn't start working. Now, both sides do agree that they didn't, that there wasn't a contract in place because, and according to Marty Stratton, it was because they didn't want to distract Mick from generating the music for the game 
No. Yeah. So never, ever, ever take that at face but, value. But, but from... they both agreed, like there was no work that was going to be done on it without a contract. Okay. So right. So and that is something that's re- that's really emphasized. Here. Good. It's so 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 important. I cannot emphasize it enough, especially if you are a young creator. Never work that a contract. Yep. And again, just regardless of of your perspective on Marty Stratton and Mick Gordon here, that's, that's not the that's that, not the point. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated about Mick's Medium post here is that he talks about the process of building music for the interactive medium and that it does need to be responsive and aligned with level design in order to be the most effective. Of course. And one of the things that, that he, that Mick claims about this process that was so wrong was that they wanted to front load the music development while the levels weren't even done yet. So he didn't really have a good idea of what he was scoring. You can't do that. Yeah. These, these have to go hand in hand. This is, this is something that has to be developed in parallel. Yes. So the best music in a game really is developed in concert with the level design and those emotional beats. And now, granted, Doom Eternal doesn't really have a whole lot of emotional no, beats no, no, other no, than Ripetair it, until it's done. But that's not necessarily true. But, well, there are I'm, moments... But let's talk about that in terms of even the narrative structure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a sweeping, grand, emotional, right, tear-jerking moment. That's what I meant. It's about, like, emotion comes down to tension in games. The building and the release of tension, mm-hmm. especially in games that are as high energy that are horror focused that require you to do a giant build and then boom there you are and then it builds and then boom there you are and, and i would say so both important. doom games do that really well they do absolutely yep. they're like the the most recent doom games are just chef's kiss yeah um in addition to the payment terms in your contract it it's really difficult to do this so so please don't mistake me saying like oh you should just have this in your contract no no you have to work with a lawyer Please work but if you can build in recourse about what happens when payment, if payment is delayed. And um, we're not talking about like, oh, payment's been delayed by a few days or even by a couple of weeks. No, we're talking, we're talking about literal months. So the reason why this is an issue is because the timetable that they were working under for the music meant this was effectively Mick Gordon's only work while he was working on this game. And that he says, again, this is from his post. We can't verify this specifically. That he went eight months for the first time, um, and then eleven months without payment. Mm-hmm. So he got finally got paid after eight months, and then he went another eleven months. He's got a family. Well, it doesn't even matter if he has a family or not. Right. He has himself. Right. He has he's got he's got bills. expenses. Like he's got bills. He's got a roof to put over his head. He's got food that he needs to buy. Yeah. And you know, like I don't know, having a life outside of his work. Yeah. It's honestly, that's the piece of this that is absolutely indefensible to me from, from, from Id's perspective is just like, why didn't you pay your people? Yeah. You always got to pay your people, pay your people on time and pay them well. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, this is one of those things where maybe we don't have the full picture, but I think sure. it's really, really tough if you are working and effectively working a job that is taking up all of your available cons- contracting hours because you're, you're a freelancer. Yeah. Right. As a, as a composer, you're a freelancer. Yeah. And you're not getting paid. That's really tough. Yeah, that's horrifying. And you, I mean, yes, you're likely making residuals on some stuff, but I mean, those royalty checks are not going to pay for everything. No. So at any rate, the last thing here is making sure that a lawyer looks at any statement that you make, whether you're making it on Twitter and a twit longer or on Medium. If it gets to this point. If it gets to this point, make sure you run it by a lawyer because Gordon's statement reads like something that was vetted by at least one um, legal professional, which again, it doesn't mean that it is the absolute truth, 
but it does likely mean that this is at least defensive and not causing more problems exactly and that's that's the most that's the most important thing that you can do if you are going to go public with literally anything make sure you run it by a lawyer yep uh okay so last, I thought that we, we were going to end the show there, but today we got a great listener question from Matthias Ahrens in our Discord community. Uh, Matthias asked, with the current layoffs news, both in tech and game studios, combined with the creation of many new studios during the pandemic, are we in for a, quote, long gaming winter? As in, it feels there is now less money, more layoffs, market and studio co- consolidation, while having more and more games being created. That doesn't sound good, but am I misinterpreting things? Okay, so Mike and I are generally aligned on this. We do want to make make sure that we we leave you hopeful. Yeah. But what I am going to do is I'm going to point us back to our trend conversation from last year. Sure. Our trend conversation from last year, which is normally happens in December. So we mm-hmm. are coming, we're due for our trend, our trend conversation. What we talked about, I think it was in 20, was it in 2021 or was it in 2020? I think it was 2021, but I think it was 2021 as well. I I, honestly, it's been a concern, especially as a result of what happened in 2021. But consolidation is something that we have been sounding alarm bells about for well over a year at Mm -hmm. this point. When we started seeing the consolidation, we started seeing mergers and acquisitions really, really ramping up. And let me tell you, gaming was hot last year in terms mm-hmm. of VCs wanting to get in private equity. We're talking about an enormous amount of money changing hands essentially with SPACs and with pipes and and trying to take companies public and everything like that. That all happened between 2020 and the tail end of 2021. And, and if you're a listener, you can tell like investment interludes gotten a lot shorter. It has because the inve- because investments have had to cool as a result mm-hmm. of the economy cooling off which again is all fake anyway because it's just people sitting around being like, yeah, we should probably just boost inflation rates mm-hmm. or we should boost interest rates and cause all kinds of problems. But that's for another conversation for another day. Yep. So that I do want to set the stage with that. Consolidation has caused problems and it is likely going to cause more problems in the future. But Mike, I want you to talk about the indie the indie game revolution sure the first runaround so if you look at where we were a decade ago 2008 2009 we had the housing crisis especially here in the united states it was a global recession all around the world because of what happened with credit default swaps cdos all the all the stuff in the subprime mortgage market that Debt was sold off internationally like Mm -hmm. greece's economy collapsed spain's economy collapsed Thankfully, you know, Canadian, Canadian, the Canadian economy wasn't strong, but it was steady and we didn't have the same kinds of problems. But I actually graduated from university around that time because I graduated from high school in 2004. So I graduated into a global recession. Yeah. So a few years later, of course, we have the indie revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Kickstarter motivated a chunk of that. Right. You had people who were able to, hey, we're going to break away from publishers. We're able to self-publish on our own. Now, I don't know that we're going to have that same kind of wave that we got following the last global recession. We but are, I wouldn't imagine that we are, namely because indie is is such an integral part of, of gaming now, of game, not just development, but of people enjoying games. Mm-hmm. 
But where my concern is, is when you have indies who have become accustomed to, you know, we've talked more about pitching in the last decade. Yeah, like, I think the business of video games has become more transparent in as, the last As decade. it should. Yeah. What I'm concerned about is a narrowing of funding uh, and in terms of priorities. Mm -hmm. So that means less risk taking and more focus on sure things and trend chasing. Trend chasing is never a sure thing, though, yep. just to be clear. If you are chasing a trend and starting your development process now, you've already lost. Yeah, that trend is going to be cool by the time your game comes out. Um, I... So that's really where my concern is that people who have really interesting new ideas are, might not find purchase with them because people people who have money are going to be very, very hesitant to fund things that they can't point to metrics and say, I think yeah, it goes even deeper than that. Go for it. Talk. I think that I think that that level of risk aversion and focusing on sure things is actually going to bar entire underserved communities from being funded because oh, they are no. not considered a sure thing. It is essentially like creating more, like having more rigid gatekeeping on money. If you don't have a, if like if your studio is in Latin America, if yep. your studio is in Mina, if your studio is somewhere, you know, in the Philippines or Malaysia or, or whatever, if you are in an underserved community making games, they are likely going to it's it may or may not end up this way but i am afraid yeah that that this is going to be a funding excuse to not take chances on underserved communities because oh well you know it might not be a good cultural fit for gamers in the united states like well okay but that's not everything the united right. states is not everything but also to your point matthias uh you know you talk about the number of studios that were created during the pandemic when things were really starting to hop i i think that is where we're actually going to see the pinch it's not with your really scrappy one two-person studios it's where you've got studios that have a lot of infrastructure around them that do have you know staff 20 30 40 50 people and suddenly you've got that's payroll. That's a burn rate that you've got to you've got to cover in some way. And if you're working on something that isn't, you know, right down Main Street in terms of appeal, then I, I think you might have a tougher time. And that's where we start to see sure. this ripple effect. We're seeing layoffs right now. Right. Yeah. The The next step of that, if things get worse, is studio closures. Yeah. And, and we I, haven't seen that in a long time in a big been, way, but it used to about, be every week. It's been about three years since we've seen major, major layoffs, um, both in tech and in gaming. The last big round of layoffs happened um, in, I think it was during fiscal Q4 of uh, 2019. Yeah. 2019 or, or whatever. Yeah, it was, the, it was fiscal 20. I believe was yeah. that fiscal twenty? No, um, it, it might have been, been the Q three the Q three reports. It might have been that winter. It, so yeah, it might it have been the first. That the, it was like January February. Yeah, yeah, of, I think so. Uh, of that year. Yeah, it was it was really ugly. Um, there were mass layoffs all over the place. Entire studio closures. Capcom Vancouver was shuttered. Yeah, I mean we had EA and Activision in the same week with yeah. thousands of people laid off. Thousands of people laid off. I mean, the, everything that happened at Telltale, mm -hmm. the original Telltale, but Telltale is back from the grave and making some cool stuff now and it's completely under new management. But my my point in this, I know that that you know, where we're worried about is studios that have infrastructure and and everything like that, like we're looking at the triple I mm -hmm. structures. Yeah. However, 
this is a good place to talk about multiple projects on in your studio. And if you are a single mm-hmm. project studio and you don't have something consistently in the hopper that you're either that you're either prototyping, you're pitching or you're publishing, you really need to take another look at the way in which you have scaled your studio. You've worked on your studio's vision for whether that's a year down the road, five years down the road, or 10 years down the road. It's important to always have something going on the back burner in case something goes wrong. And in some cases, that's contract co-development. Yeah, contract co-development is is incredible. I mean, there, there are entire studios that have been built through co-development. Sabre was a big one. Yeah. Right? Like that was Sabre's thing. Certain Affinity in Austin, mm-hmm. you know, that's another that's another huge studio that doesn't tend to have a ton of attrition and definitely doesn't do layoffs because they only hire when they're sure yeah. that they can keep the people on for a, for the for the long term. Yeah, right? that's what Supergiant told me when I interviewed them. Yeah. For uh... another studio that doesn't tend to have a ton yeah. of attrition because again, the culture's good and um, they they rarely bite off more than they can chew. Mm-hmm. So that's important, I think, heading into what is going to be a global recession is take a look at how you're developing your games, not in terms of how do I cut corners with my budget and everything like that, but how you're pitching your games, how you're moving through your production pipelines and do the very best that you can to at least have something always burning in the background. And on the AAA side, I don't think we're going to see AAA scale back a ton in terms of size. No. Although layoffs are not out of the question, of course. Um, But I think we're going to see them take fewer risks as well. I think in terms of what's going to be happening at AAA Studios is not necessarily going to be on the same scale as we saw in 2019, Mm -hmm. namely because we are almost entirely looking at AAA as games as a service. These are live service games for the most part that have consistent updates. Back in the day when we saw these huge studio closures, these massive rounds of layoffs, we are talking like legacy studios that don't exist anymore, right? They were all laid off or these these studios were closed because they did not, because live service games were not a thing, because DLC wasn't a thing, because expansions were only kind of a thing. And that's only if your game was successful. Because we are able to push out updates relatively, with relatively little friction, there is usually a path forward for many AAA, for many AAA gaming teams Mm -hmm. Um, as they as they push out their products into the marketplace and they can continue to iterate. I mean, we've seen so much great success. I mean, we were just talking about EA, but we're like with Apex Legends. That sure. was a, that was a really big one that could have gone incredibly badly. And it did not start off great. Like no, it, it, it had its own stumbles as it as it launched. And it continues to have its stumbles as it as you know with its community and everything like that. But that's something to consider: is that AAA is not. It, it's not necessarily going to see no change it like it's it's not going to be able to stay stayed but it'll be more stable than triple i and double a yeah uh great thank you matias so much for that question it was fantastic hope the answer is uh is everything you hope for and much much more that wraps us up for this episode thank you so much for listening to the virtual economy podcast uh, you can still follow us on Twitter. You can. Uh, the show, we're going to continue promoting the show on Twitter, at Virtual EconCast. Um, I'm not using Twitter that much these days. I'm Neither at Futterish, F-U-T-T-E-R-I-S-H. 
And I am my first and last name. So yep. that's at Amanda Farrow. We're also on Mastodon. We are. And those are listed on our accounts. Yep. So uh, it's again at footerish at gamedev.place. That's the instance that we chose. And Amanda is the same. You know, is the same. We're Amanda like, Farrow at gamedev.place. We're exactly the same on, on all of our places. Like we're on co-host where I'm on. I couch. finally got approved for co-host like a week <laughs> later. It's like, what? This is not. Viable. It's okay. It's fine. No. Um, and I'm also on counter social. So. We're, we're in other places. You can also, you know, get at us basically anywhere. I mean, we're yep. both on Instagram as well. Yes. So, the, but the best place to find us is actually here on this show. And you can subscribe to our RSS feed at virtualeconcast.com. We're also available on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. I just forget this last one. Pocket Sand! Oh, Pocket Sand! I yep. hate pocket sand. I know. It, oh, it gets in time. everything. It really does. Yeah, you have to wash out your, your pocket sand crevices. That was not necessary. I was talking about my neck folds. You don't have neck folds. Oh. oh my God. If I had neck folds, I would have to wash them out from pocket sand. Oh, he's the worst. No more. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are officially, this is a gag order. <laughs> neck folds. So gross. My waddle. Oh no, I knew that was coming. <laughs> Get away from me, Allie McBeal. <laughs> All right. And if you enjoyed our shenanigans, business shenanigans, weird corporate shenanigans, weird and corporate just shenanigans. utter tomfoolery, you can subscribe on your platform of choice. And if possible, we'd love it if you reviewed the show. We love hearing from people, just like we love having listener questions. Yes. Uh, you can DM us with those questions, uh, or you can send them to podcast at fsquared.biz. Of course, you can do what Matias did. And ask the question in our Discord server. We are delighted to send you an invite. Again, we're still checking our DMs. If you would like an invite to the Discord server, just DM the Virtual Econcast account, and I will be glad to get you an invite. And that wraps us up for this week. We will be back at some point soon. Yes. Everything is in flux as usual. But in the meantime, remember to wash your hands, stay hydrated, and be good to one another. We'll see you soon. <laughs>